this week on the Backtable Podcast. And the whole ethos of the website was to make it sort of expert, independent opinion. And by independent, I mean independent from industry influence. And we very much didn't want to make it swayed by certain companies and companies say, well, put our device on and we'll give you some money. You know, that's not how it works. Basically, we'll put any device on that we think's interesting or our members think is interesting. People can submit comments. They can, they can say, put a device on for us and we'll put it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. Today, we've got a very special interview. Um, this will actually be going out probably on, on the VI show as well as the innovation show. I've been looking forward to this because I have been using this platform since I was a fellow in 2012 and um, actually partially inspired Backtable, I guess you could say, whichmedicaldevice.com. Uh, many of our listeners have, have heard of it and used it. We have the founder today uh, and current president of the uh, British Society of Interventional Radiology, Dr. Phil Haslam. Welcome, Phil. Thank you very much, Sharon. It's great to be here with you this evening. And I also have my co-host, Deanna Velasquez-Pimentel. Deanna, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. I thank Deanna for introducing me to Phil, which was just shortly after Cersei, right? I don't think I got, I, we didn't get to meet in person, but I told Deanna that it was kind of like a dream of mine to meet Phil. And then you, you quickly introduced uh, the two of us shortly afterwards. So I appreciate that. God, it's not very often that I can make someone's dream come true. You know, I can't <laughs> believe it was a big dream of yours. I really can't. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, Phil, it, it really like, so just to live a little, give a little background, the audience, some of the audience has heard this before on prior episodes, but you haven't. And, and so, you know, back in 2012, 2013, when I was in fellowship, I had this idea to create something very similar to which medical device where young guys who are coming out could kind of share tips and tricks on devices because I went from, you know, an academic fellowship to a private practice group where I was covering 10 different hospitals and I was a different hospital every week and every hospital had different devices in it. Right. Yeah, sure. And, and what I found myself doing was just calling up people I knew either from training or others out there, uh, via social media, like, Hey, you know, have you ever used this device? I'm not quite sure. You know, I, some of these hospitals were out in the boonies, so I didn't have a sales rep readily available. And so I just felt like there'd be a great central resource, uh, whether it be an app, a website, or, and, and ours turned into basically a, a podcast. We, we did tinker with an app at one point, um, and we'll get into the challenges of that as, as you tell us the story about Wish Medical Device. When I was talking about this idea, Peter Bream, one of my mentors and fellowship director, he told me about wishmedicaldevice.com, and I, it, I did find it incredibly useful during those early days. And so for those of us who aren't familiar with you, Phil, for those in our audience, tell us a little bit about your background and, and where you are today. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Well, I started off really as a, as a clinician doing sort of what you call internal medicine, um, but I'd always planned to do radiology and always really wanted to do interventional radiology. So I was very much a hands-on person. 
So back in those days, you had to do medicine first or surgery first before you went into radiology. So I then went into radiology and was pretty much inspired by the interventionists I came across. Uh, Henry Luce, one of the founders of BSAR, was one of my mentors at the Freeman. And I saw some fairly impressive stuff. And, and that was me absolutely committed to IR, really, from that day on. I then did my, did my training in Newcastle. I was then lecturing in interventional radiology with Mick Lee in Dublin. And that was a phenomenal year. I mean, really nice group of people, great mentor, and uh, you know, just a great place to live as well. And I learned an awful lot over that year. Uh, it was brilliant. Then came back to Newcastle, and I've been there ever since, since quite a long time now. <laughs> so you've been in the same practice, pretty much? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been in the Freeman for, God, 22 years now. Okay. Where were you in your career when you started which medical device, and kind of what, what inspired starting that platform? Yeah, I mean, I'd been a consultant for probably about eight years, and I was—I remember—I remember the specific time when this came to my mind. I'd been doing a lot of gastrostomies, and suddenly we found we couldn't get hold of the T fasteners. And these T fasteners for gastropexy were something that Peter Muller had designed, and Mick Lee, who I'd worked with, had had got his hands on them through that. And they're a really great device. And I think the company stopped manufacturing them. So we started looking for alternatives. And I was looking around the internet, around all different company websites, and all their websites were awful. And I couldn't find what I wanted. And when I did find what I wanted, I thought, well, is it any good? Who uses it? Let's find out who uses these things. And then I couldn't really find that information anywhere. And at the time, and I still am, I was very much into my photography and into gadgets. And I always read review websites. And there was a website called DP Review, which is still out there, actually, for digital photography. And I used to go to that and see which camera or lenses I was going to buy next. I thought, well, hey, why don't we have something similar for medical devices, namely interventional radiology devices? where people can say what they like, what they get on with, what they don't like, give tips and tricks for using a device, and even videos on how you use a device. So that's pretty much where the idea came from. And that was probably about 15 years ago now, I think, we got started with that. So with that initial idea, what was your your minimal viable product? Or like, what, what, how did you start it? Did you have experience creating a website or did you have to hire somebody to, to help you create it? Well, I found, a, I found a local guy who was going to do a website for me for not too much money. I put a, a chunk of my own cash into it to get it off the ground and just started loading up products, things I'd used, things I knew about, things I liked, and a couple of things I didn't like and put those up there and try to get the word around to get people to comment on them. But as you know, trying to get people to contribute to anything is really difficult. It's it's very easy for people to come to a website and read reviews, but to actually get something to give something back in return was really hard. So I plodded along with that for a couple of years and it certainly got some traction and the membership started to grow. And I thought, well, look, this clearly works for interventional radiology. Why not look at other device heavy specialties like cardiology, cardiothoracics, orthopedics? And I realized I had to develop the website. So I was looking around for a new web designer. And I went to this company in Newcastle. And by pure chance, when I turned up at this company, the current MD was chatting to an orthopedic surgeon who I knew, and they were working on something for training orthopedic surgeons using uh, sort of Nintendo Wii devices and things like that. And they were a gaming company and also post-production video company and web company. So I got chatting to those two and we said, well, look, let's do this together. And uh, and so those were my other two partners in the business, um, orthopedic surgeon and a manager stroke web developer. And we kind of took it on from there, really. As you were branching into like the cardiovascular space, did you bring on uh, or talk to and kind of do market research with any cardiologists or vascular surgeons or 
because that can be kind of challenging, right? To cover devices that you aren't familiar with or your orthopedic partner aren't familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that still is a challenge. So I put the word around quite a few colleagues at the hospital I work in, you know, we're a multi-specialty hospital and we've got pretty much every specialty there. So I got a few of us down to the local pub one night and said, look, guys, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Plied them with some beers, said, are you interested? <laughs> are you going to contribute? Do you want to be an editor for cardiology? Do you want to be an editor for orthopedics? And, and so on. That's how I got other people involved. Yeah. And so have those people been editors since that day or has it been challenging to keep people engaged? We talk about the challenge of contributors, just the docs that are out there. But even I think it's challenging, even with your core team of editors, it might be challenging. Has that been an issue? Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see if you've been looking at which medical device, really the only side of it that's really been growing much at the moment is interventional radiology, because I'm primarily the one driving that. The orthopedic surgeon I worked with, he's moved um, down to the Royal Orthopedic Hospital in London. And he's very busy with a new sort of part of his career there. So he doesn't really have the time to put into it. And some of the other guys lost interest. So one of the things I'm going to be doing this year actually is is sort of striking out and trying to get and recruit new editors, not just for interventional radiology, but for the other specialties as well. They need refreshing. I think the problem is you'll find people say, yeah, great idea. I want to get involved. It's a line on my CV. And they've ticked that box and then they, they just forget about it. I feel I've got a zillion questions. I'm going to let, I'm going to pause and let Deanna jump in with any in case I, I don't want to completely run the, the whole show. I don't know. That's okay. I'd be really curious to understand what is it that drives traction on a website like this? What is it, has it been about interventional radiology that has meant you've been able to keep it up? Is it you driving it or is it you having conversations with people about which medical device? I think one of the things that inspires me is when I go to conferences and I think we, we very much work in partnership with industry and I know a lot of the industry guys really well now and some of them come to me and some of the distributors will come to me and they say, look, we've got this device. What do you think? Do you think we should distribute this? Do you think we should sell it? Do you think it's worth doing? Um, so I get information that way and I go around the stands and I see what late, latest devices are and I chat to the guys who develop them. Sometimes they're at the meetings and that's what gives me the inspiration. And I see things that are interesting. I think, yeah, I'm going to put that on the website. And the whole ethos of the website was to make it sort of expert independent opinion. And by independent, I mean independent from industry influence. And we very much didn't want to make it swayed by certain companies and companies say, well, put our device on and we'll give you some money. You know, that's not how it works. Basically, we'll put any device on that we think's interesting or our members think's interesting. People can submit comments. They can they can say, put a device on for us and we'll put it on. Yeah, like taking a trust pilot model, um, but putting it into the medical device space. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So al along those lines... There's the challenge of when you have that relationship with industry, they're participating in, in a certain way. You're trying, to, you're trying to minimize any kind of influence that they have. You want reviews by trusted experts, physicians. And one of the challenges we had early on was people from industry who couldn't help themselves. They wanted to come on and even pretend to be a physician to write a review. Have you had anything like that happen? No, it's, it's one of the things companies have always worried about. It's difficult to get traction from industry because they're, they're a very conservative group and they're very much behind the times, I think, as far as their marketing is concerned. And they worry about getting negative reviews. They worry about one of their competitors jumping on the website and saying bad things about the company and their products. But the thing is, nobody can leave a comment on the website without having registered first. So we know if anyone writes a comment, they're a registered user and we know who those users are. 
Now, you can write a comment with a pseudonym. No one has to know your real name, but we do through the back end of the website. So if anyone was to write anything derogatory or anything that could be seen as litigious, perhaps, then that could be flagged and anybody can flag a comment. And once it's flagged, we'll take the comment down and we'll discuss it. And we'll enter into discussion with the person who made the comment and the company who was involved. Now, in 14 years, it's never happened. But we always say to industry, we can do that. But I think we're dealing with a different group of people who use this website. It's not like TripAdvisor. Um, you're not dealing with a massive broad spectrum of the population. We're dealing with a primarily a group of specialists who are all interested in the same thing. So that's why I don't think it seems to be a problem. Yeah, it's more like gearheads that are more likely to leave a positive review, I think. That being said, we're all humans, right? People get emotional, people have bad outcomes, and then they may feel the need to leave something that's uh, more emotional than helpful. Can you can you kind of just give us, not necessarily examples, but you know, some of along those lines of challenges in terms of like weeding out those bad reviews, those flagged ones, what kind of things have been um, most challenging in that sense, in terms of dealing with bad reviews? Yeah, well, we've only ever had one, what I would call, bad review that, that came to our attention. We thought, oh, that doesn't sound quite right. And that was a device that had eroded through a patient's skin. And the reason it eroded through the patient's skin was because they'd put the device too close to the skin surface. They hadn't put it deep enough. And so it wasn't really a problem with the device itself. So we discussed this with the manufacturers and said, look, this comment's been made. What do you think? And they said, no, we're just going to ignore it. And they ignored it. Nothing ever came of it. And, you know, other people commented, well, maybe you put it in wrong or so and so. And, you know, I think the company took the view and I think they were quite right just to, just to let it lie. And it, w- it was never an issue for them. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, it creates a discussion, right? On that note, I'd be super curious to know. You know, you can use which medical device as a marketing platform, but there's also a scope here to use it as a post-market surveillance platform. Have you ever been approached by um, anyone in industry to run a service like that? Yeah, the MHRA here in the UK um, asked us to work with them. This was all many years ago, probably about eight, nine years ago. Um, We do have links through to them. And, you know, if there was anything adverse, we could report stuff to them. Um, through the website. Um, it's never happened as it happens, but it, it's a possibility, yeah. I've always thought about this. You know, in pharma, we've got we've got the yellow card system in the UK. I don't know what, what it might be called in the US. But for medical devices, I'm not really aware of a formal reporting uh, mechanism when you when you find issues. Yeah, there is actually. That's through the MHRA. There's a, it's, a bit, it's exactly the same as your yellow card system, really. So if you have a device failure, something breaks, you'll fill in one of these forms and the manufacturer will notify the MHRA as well. So there's, a, there's actually very good feedback to um, the MHRA about device failures, providing people do it, of course. Yeah. I imagine they run into many of the same problems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and so can you just walk through for somebody who maybe hasn't been on the website, but wants to maybe check it out and learn more. And, and for people who are like super excited about writing reviews, how does it work? Can you uh, like give us an example of how somebody would write a review on uh, the latest and greatest Mediport, something like that? Yeah, sure. Well, f- first of all, you go to the website and you've got to navigate the website. You've got to find the bit of information you're looking for. So say, for example, ports, you could, um, if you go to click on interventional radiology, click on vascular, I think we put ports under vascular because they are kind of vascular, and then you'll find implantable ports somewhere in that list of devices. Or you can just do a free text search just for port and you'll find all the ports. So find the port you want, and then underneath that, you'll find any related devices. So that'll be similar ports, a bit like you see on Amazon, like people who bought this also looked at this and so on. So you can compare the different ports and you can rate them 
and rank them by star ratings, by um, ratings people have given devices. So what they could do, they'd have to be registered on the site to do this, of course. You can then simply go on, takes two seconds, give a port a star rating, five star, four star, three star, two star, one star, whatever you like. Takes two seconds, click go. Or you could actually write a comment and you can even upload pictures, photographs, x-rays of the device in use or any problems you've had with it. You can upload those to the website as well, very, very simply, really. So that's how that works. Those are sort of short reviews, comments. You can also put tips and tricks for using a device. If there's something particularly you've noticed that if you're putting this particular port in, you must do this, you can put that in the comments and tips section. Now, if you're a user who's got a more in-depth knowledge of a device and you, you feel you could write um, sort of several paragraphs on it, along with some great pictures or even some video, you could write an in-depth review for us and you'll find those on the homepage on the right-hand side of the website. And very few of those reviews have been written today because they, you know, they take a bit more time to do. And I suspect if you look, you'll find that quite a few have been written by me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember those days of like trying to just get it's it's like priming the pump, you know, yeah. putting a bunch in there. And, you know, I used to like call my friends and be just like, hey, can you write a review on this or that? Just so that you can uh, just get if there's something on there, people are more likely to, um, I think, you know, engage and contribute. Basically, from personal experience, I know it's hard to get docs to write reviews. They are busy and many are afraid to put themselves out there. Have you come up with any creative ways to overcome this challenge? Yeah, there's, there's quite a few things we try to do. We've not really managed to overcome it, unfortunately, as yet. We try to tell people that really they can put reviews anonymously. And I think that helps, but most people don't realize that. They, they tend to register with their, uh, you know, with, with their own name rather than just call themselves something like X-ray doc or IR doc or something, you know, which they, they could call themselves anything like that and then leave a review. And so I think people are worried as to what they might think of them or what the manufacturers might think of them if they make some sort of comment, some negative comment. We give people impact score. So the more you contribute to the site, the higher your impact score. And we like to think that we're all fairly competitive bunch. And, you know, we, we hope there'd be a bit of a ranking system with people with the highest scores and we'd, we'd give out a prize or something, but that hasn't really worked. Uh, what we have done, we've done a device of the year where people have voted on their favorite device of the year. And that was very successful for a number of years, trying to get people to vote. But again, that wasn't so, many, so much comments on the website as people actually voting for a device. And we're going to be um, sort of, we're going to be relaunching that as sort of device of the month over the next few months and hopefully getting people to vote. It is difficult. It's really difficult to get people engaged with it. As I said before, I mean, people will come and read the information, but trying to get them to contribute is difficult. I think even harder, I mean, something you'll see and I've moved on to a lot now is I make a lot of videos of using devices and doing procedures and only those on which medical device are also on a YouTube channel. Making the videos, actually filming it's really quick, but as you'll know from doing back table, Aaron, you know, it's the post-production, it's the editing and getting it all together and making it look semi-professional. That's what takes the time. And as a full-time clinician, it's there's only so many hours in the day. There's only so much time to devote to this sort of thing. You know, exactly. I mean, my, I, I was going to ask you about, like, have you done anything at events, you know, where, you know, you've had a booth or, you know, like at a conference, for example, at BSIR or SIR, where you have a booth and try and get people engaged that way. You know, the things that we've done over the year, I mean, the podcast is really, it was, that was our content marketing strategy it was just to get people talking about stuff. And it just ended up being, you know, what we went with ultimately, because we found that the docs had fun doing that. 
And it was a lot, there was a lot less resistance getting people to come on the podcast versus getting the right reviews and trying to contribute on the webs on our website. And so that's why I, I just, I, I know it's challenging and, and I know that you've been doing it for a long time. So I'm sure you've gone through a number of ideas and what kinds of things have you done at live events, like at conferences? Well, I mean, I uh, I was probably cursed at Circe in the SAR for many years because I, I'd go around in the early days with, I'd come armed with a bag full of flyers and I would liberally distribute them along the front rows of all the lecture theatres um, and also amongst the trainee events as well. And that actually worked quite well. People would pick up the leaflet and say, oh, what's this? You know, this sounds interesting. And I've um, I've spoken at various meetings about which medical device. I've had a stand at BSIR for quite a few years. The stand was good, actually, because... We got people walking past, people talking to us. But actually, I find it easier to go around and talk to people rather than stay in one spot on a stand. But on the stand, we had great fun with this. I thought, what makes a good interventional radiologist? How do you get good hand-eye coordination? And how do you assess these people? No one's doing it. No one's really assessing people. You can't even do it with a simulator. So you know these um, the wire with the buzzer things? So what we did, we got one of these big wires and buzzers made. It was the size of my desk. And people had to basically go from one end to the other. And we had it on the stand at the BSAR. We did it for a couple of years. And we had a time. We timed people. So it was competitive. And, of course, people are really, really competitive. And I think the current president of BSAR, I remember at the time, didn't do very well. And that caused a, a fair bit of merriment. But the person who won was actually one of the IR nurses um, from somewhere else in the country. And she won herself a GoPro you know, to that. And she was very good at it. I mean, I was the best because I've been practicing, of course. So, uh, but I, I was excluded. <laughs> you you made, you knew the shape. I knew the shape. I could have done it blindfold. Yeah. Just with my x-ray eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have much more luck getting people to contribute to the video content? So you've mentioned that you've taken the time to, you know, make short videos about devices, but do you accept submissions from other radiologists or other clinicians? Yeah, absolutely. I would, I'd be delighted if people would submit some videos and they need to be of a certain quality. They don't have to be professionally produced. In fact, I, I much prefer the videos we make, which are very much, this is how it really is. You know, there's blood everywhere. There's, you know, patients moving on the table a little bit and the camera's a little bit shaky and things don't always go very well, but that's real life. And that's how we use these devices. The, the videos that the companies make are very sterile and, uh, and they're not very real. And in fact, one of the companies has has taken one of my videos and used it for many, many years on their stands. And every time I go around the conference, I just hear my voice coming out of their booth. And it's their video showing how to use that device, you know, that we made. And they loved it. I completely agree, Phil. I think that we need to go back to like a raw, more raw kind of look at things. Uh, the, the, the stuff that industry makes is way too polished, right? It's it's like for primetime television for patients. It's not for physicians. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, because we just zone out. We're like, this isn't this isn't reality. And and when we see a colleague actually performing a procedure in a realistic setting, that's what we're going to tune into. Yeah, and I think it, and the videos as a as an educational tool, I think are far better than anything else we can do. I mean, people don't read as much these days. They certainly, don't read as many books. But learning stuff from a video is really easy and you can relate to that. And I found that the videos have got an awful lot of traction on the website and on the YouTube channel. Yeah, I was just talking to a interventional nephrologist about this recently. Um, he was talking about how he doesn't do his permcast with sedation anymore. He just does a nerve block. And he was like, I learned it on YouTube. And then I implemented it and it's super easy and 
because he's in an outpatient setting, he's like, it just improves our, our throughput and not having to do sedation. And that's just a perfect example of like, there's the contents out there. I think a lot of the contents out there, there still could be a lot more quality content. Again, it's all about getting rid of the fluff and just getting down to what are the essentials. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Has to be done. To a big extent, getting physicians to find the content. I think quite often you go to YouTube or you go to the Cersei website, uh, you log in, you're, you're frantically looking for to answer one question you have, but it's just not very well indexed. How have you optimized the search of which medical device so that physicians can find it? Yeah, people ask us this a lot and the companies ask us this and we haven't. We haven't done a single thing. And when we, well, let's go back to maybe five years ago when Google did page rankings and we had access to those, our page ranking was really high. And I think that's primarily because of the content we had on the site and the fact that people are going to it and they're staying on the site for a re reasonable length of time. So I, pay, I had no idea what a page ranking was now, but it used to be that if you could, you search for a product, you'd find us fairly high up in the Google results, sometimes above the manufacturer themselves. I mean, that's not always the case, but certainly with some products on the site, that does happen. So we haven't specifically done SEO stuff on it at all. Wow, that's great. And it'd be so amazing if what you found was which medical device before you even got any, which is like a trusted opinion of, you know, whatever it might be, a port before you saw any of the information from the manufacturer. Yeah, absolutely. And what I do say to people though, is um, like with any website, I mean, certainly the videos I make, this is, this is how I do the procedure. Doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. I'd hope to hopefully say it's not the wrong way to do it, but there's lots of different ways to do procedures. You know, be it putting in ports, dialysis lines, angioplasties, EVARs, you know, so this is just one way to do it. And that's what I try and tell people. Yeah. And that goes to show you the, the power of providing value with search engine optimization. So Google, you know, people are coming to your website organically to find this stuff. And over time that builds up and then your, your, your keywords are going to be at the top versus, you know, just go back to the example of Mediport. So many types in Mediport, the top industry providers may not because they don't have good content around placing a Mediport, right? It seems like they would, but yeah, they're they're not. And and so that's the conversation I have a lot of times when we're talking about creating content in partnership with industry. It's like, look, guys, we're we're here to make stuff that our peers will actually want to listen to. So let's try and find some medium ground because a lot of times they just want to put out an infomercial, which we all know people nobody wants to listen to right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about like, how are you? So it's a, I know this is a lot of work, Phil, because, you know, I, I do some of this stuff. It's, it, it, it's all consuming, right? And, and it can be, yeah. Keeping up to date with the latest information and devices, I know is a huge feat. How are you doing that? Is there a partnership with industry where they send you, hey, this is what we got this year? Is there a way that you're able to like incorporate databases into your website so you have the latest information on devices? Yeah, so that's a good idea, Aaron. We don't actually do that. It's it's very informal, really. It's very much what I see when I go around conferences or if I do get contacted by companies and I look at stuff. But I try not to be influenced too much by what companies are putting in front of me because it might not be the right sort of thing that I want to put on the website. I mean, I'll put most things up there that are of, of interest, but I don't want to ever feel that we're, we're being pushed into putting something on. That would make it sort of biased. And it's a hard line to tread, really. It's difficult to get it just right. But what I would like, I would like people to suggest devices. And there's a, there's a bit you can click on the website where you can suggest a device. And if someone suggests something to us, we'll put it up there. 
That's great. So like it's a like a form that people fill out and they just write in what device they'd like to see and Yeah, you'll just just click it. Yeah. You'll just find it. You'll find it on the home page. I'm just going onto the website myself and you'll find suggested device just beneath there's a search box for manufacturer category and procedure and underneath that is suggested device. So just need to click on that, fill in the form and it'll appear as if by magic. And and are there any issues with US versus uh, UK or European devices or can you pretty much put anything on there? Yeah, well, it was um, it was great when we first started because uh, actually, you believe it or not, the US are our biggest number of viewers. But because of we had the devices came out earlier in Europe than they did in the States before they got FDA approval, sometimes by many years. So we find a lot of the American clinicians would be looking at the site and seeing products that they couldn't get hold of and saying, well, we want to get our hands on this, you know, and they could see how it was being used. And it's very useful. But I think the situation's probably reversing itself now um, with the new medical device regulations in Europe and certainly in the UK, where the UK has completely um, stymied themselves here by pulling out of the EU. And I'm not going to get political here, but it means that we can't use some of the devices that are in Europe because there's going to be a new UK, a new UK device stamp, if you like, that the devices have to pass before they can be used in the UK. And this is completely ridiculous because there are certain niche products now that are life-saving devices in cardiology, interventional radiology, orthopedics, that clinicians aren't going to be able to use because the manufacturers and distributors are saying, well, it's not worth our while just for the UK to put money into getting it approved. So these things are going to disappear off the market if this goes ahead. Thankfully, they've put it back by a year or so. Definitely a space to watch. I just recently read an article that in Switzerland, they've voted to allow FDA products to be used within that geographic area, which is which is insane, right? Um, I think all the legislation still has to go through, but that landscape could change very quickly with, with the right people on board. But it's definitely, definitely a big issue that we need to address. Yeah, absolutely. We just got to get people to listen to it. Um, you know, it is... It's, uh, bit of potential disaster just around the corner, I think. Yeah. And Phil, that's another question I had because um, there are so many changes when it comes to devices. Does your website provide resources on things like policy changes, reimbursement changes, stuff like that? You know, articles like Deanna just mentioned, um, or is it just more around just the devices themselves? It's more around just the devices, Aaron. We, I mean, we, we can't talk about reimbursement for starters because that's very country specific and probably state specific. And it's not something we get into in the UK. What I did want to do and have never done this yet is, well, you can rank devices by their star rating and popularity on the website. But what I thought would be a neat idea would be to rank them by price, by cost. Can you imagine the furor that would cause if we did this? Particularly as we know that the price of some devices vastly dissimilar in different countries. Yeah. Different countries, different cities, different Absolutely. hospitals, right? Yeah. I mean, they, everybody's got these deals, these bundles. In the US, it, it's price transparency is nearly impossible Yeah, because you have all these deals that are specific to, they're geographic specific, they're specific to certain hospital systems. I don't know how, to, how is, it, is it similar in the UK? Well, there's a national procurement system in the UK, but you will find that some hospitals will have different deals because they'll be buying things in bulk or they'll be buying it alongside other products from the same company. So the prices aren't all the same, Yeah, even across the NHS. Yeah, I imagine it would create some heat on you, but I, I mean, it'd be really interesting and fun to read about. That would be, be great fun. I'm, I must <laughs> say, I'm, I'm still very tempted to do it. Yeah. It, the problem is, is finding what the base price is. Right, right. It's really hard to get that information. 
So along those lines, Phil, I just had one more question and I'll let, I'll let Deanna, before we uh, go with final thoughts, I um, wanted to know sort of, do you have a vision for how you'd like the, the platform to evolve uh, going forward? Uh, any, any big plans for this year or, or even the next three to five years? I think the biggest plan for this year, Aaron, really is to refresh the editorial board, try and get more people contributing, more in-depth reviews and comparisons of different devices. That's really my main aim for the next 12 months. It's difficult, though, putting the time in. As you, as you know, I'm president of the BSIR at the moment up until this coming November, and that's quite a time sink in itself. So it, it's a constant battle, really, getting time to try and keep up to date with devices, let alone um, develop the website. It's difficult. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with uh, with BSIR this year. You guys have a, an annual conference, correct? Yeah, we do. Um, it's going to be in Wales at the International Conference Centre in Wales at the beginning of November. We've had big changes this year. We've brought in a, a new CEO. Well, a CEO. We've never had a CEO before for BSIR, so we're growing. And uh, and we've got a new conference organising company as well. So it's it's all change and hopefully onwards and upwards for us, really. It's looking very positive. Yeah, good, good. Because, uh, I mean, are you seeing the rebound that other conferences are seeing with, um, you know, post-COVID, like people with attendance and everything? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, during COVID, it was horrendous, as you know. We went online, but we still managed to have a very successful conference. I mean, we had a great conference organiser and she did a brilliant job of that. But when we bounced back after COVID last year and when some company, some conferences were still online, we actually did a live face-to-face one in Glasgow. And it was a bit of a gamble. And up until a few days before it, it could, it could have gone badly. Um, but it was fantastic success. And there was a real buzz. Everybody was so excited to be back to face-to-face meetings. It was brilliant. And yeah, there has been a rebound. And I think this year will be even more so. The last question I had is um, for someone right at the beginning of their IR career, like me, what advice would you have on what the best way to look at medical devices is? Like, Where do you start? How can you learn about medical devices and apply it in a way that's appropriate for the stage that someone, like an early res- early career resident? Yeah, okay, Diana, that's, that's a great question. I think my advice to you and to anyone starting off in IR is to work in as many different places as possible. Says he who's been in the same place for 22 years. <laughs> but no, <laughs> certainly at the start of your career. Work. I mean, you will be rotating around different hospitals, but if you're only in one hospital, you will learn the way they do it with the devices they're used to doing. And people are creatures of habit. They tend to stick with a one bit of kit. Um, they don't tend to experiment. They don't tend to change very much. Well, some do, but the vast majority of people stick with what they're used to. And it's just familiarity. So you want to go to another hospital and see different ways of doing it and find what works best for you. But don't be frightened to try new things. Don't be frightened to try using devices off-label in the appropriate situation. And we, we do this every day of the week. I mean, I'm going back to the days when we used to bend catheters over kettles and things like that to make new shapes. But, you know, we still modify devices that we use and they end up sometimes being made into new devices. Um, you've got to be careful doing this, of course. I'm not advocating you go and uh, change <laughs> every single thing you use. Don't get me wrong. It's part of the fun. Look, look, on, look on YouTube. There's lots of different ways to get this information. Yeah. And that's what I love about the video section of your website. You know, you've got the opportunity to learn about one device from five, six, potentially 10 different interventional radiologists. So it'd be really, really great to keep an eye on that. Yeah, no, good. I hope, hope you will. And one of my aims is to try and make more videos over the next year or so. I mean, I was just going through some SD cards I had today and uploading stuff onto my computer to make some space. 
And I found various videos I recorded that I've never got around to editing yet. And as I say, it's just time consuming. It really is. So for any keen IRs that are already recording how they use their devices, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you uh, to submit these videos? Yeah, just email email me, phil at whichmedicaldevice.com. Um, just drop me an email if they've got a video. And is that the same email they can use if for getting in touch with you about being on the editorial board? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just e- email me, phil at whichmedicaldevice.com and I'll get back to you. Great. I won't promise that we'll publish any videos, of course, but uh, you know, uh, as long as they're of decent quality and they're showing the right thing, we'd be delighted to have any contributions. Absolutely delighted. Yeah. I mean, we've got some at Backtable. I know Chris Beck has created a few over time, so maybe they'll, maybe they'll be a good fit. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll get with Chris. And, and we will link to your YouTube channel and, of course, which medical device um, in our show notes. One thing that I wanted to ask you about before we finish, speaking of bandwidth, is how do you find the time to go kite surfing and when during the year? Because, you know, it's cold now. When are you kite surfing? Is it only in the summer or are you taking trips down to the Caribbean? How are, we, how are you doing this? Well, no, we're, we're quite a tough lot in the northeast of England, Aaron. You know, we kite surf all year round. So I was out last wow. weekend, actually. Oh, my Lord. I, was, I was, had my car all loaded today to head up the coast and... Then my son was up the coast and he said, he said, don't bother, there's no wind. So we just went for a walk instead. Um, so yeah, I do it all year round whenever the opportunity arises. I tried it in North Carolina in the Outer Banks, which was a great spot to, to learn. It's incredibly, diff- incredibly challenging. I, I, I've, I'm a snowboarder. I've done you know, wakeboarding, but kite surfing is a whole different level. I mean, you got to learn, you got to know how to fly a kite, a huge kite that can kill you, basically. It's, uh, it's treacherous for sure. And uh, I, I hope at some point I can have the time to try to learn it again. I was able to get up briefly, but uh, yeah, and throw in the cold weather on top of that. Whew. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. Sometimes you find the water temperature is warmer than the air temperature. But I've moved. I've moved more into wing foiling now, which is a bit like riding a unicycle on the water. Oh, so you hold the wing up a bit like a windsurfing wing, and you you're on a hydrofoil, and uh, that's that's quite an entertaining sport. Yeah, and you don't need you don't need wind, right? Oh yeah, no, no. This is with the wind. This is uh, this is this is the next thing from kite surfing. I would say it's really taking off all over the world at the moment. It's um, it's great fun. What's the uh, the capital expense on that? Is it is the equipment pretty expensive? Yeah, I mean it's like kite surfing gear, but you need to I mean buy your gear second hand. You can get some very good gear that's been a year old, you know, hasn't been thrashed, and you know you don't have to spend as much on it then. That's cool. I we'll have to look into that, Phil. Yeah, yeah it's good fun. Anything else, Deanna? Before we finish up? No, it's so great to have you on the show, Phil. Really great to learn a bit more about which medical device, and excited to see see what you've got planned for it. No, it's been a real pleasure, and thank you very much, both of you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and um, hope giving you some useful information as well. For sure. Thank you, Phil, and thank you to your audience for listening. And we will see you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. 
Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 